imagine if a man was transported from 100 years ago into your living room. He stands there on the corner. He says, what's this box doing here? And you say, oh, that's a television set. He's tapping on it. He says, uh, what does it do? So well, a, a guy comes on and reads the news to me, up-to-date news. He says, how does he get in the box? So uh, he's not in the box. The guy says, is he in the box or is me? I say, well, his image is in the box. A signal, a, a television signal is sent through the air until it gets to my house where there's a disc, a satellite disc, and a dish, and it comes through a cable and into the set, and he manifests. The guy taps the screen for a minute and says, what are you talking about? You're saying that some invisible newsreader goes through the air, floats through the air invisibly, gets to a dish on your roof, comes down the dish from a cable and comes up into the box. What are you talking? You think I'm a fool? But there's an air of confidence in your voice. You said, give him a remote and push that power switch and you'll see it happen. And I know what we're saying sounds fantastic in the truest sense of the word. We're saying the invisible God that you cannot see will manifest himself to you if you push the button. That's all you have to do. There's a challenge for you. Push the button. It's called repentance and faith. Be honest. Realize you've sinned against God. Look at the commandments. Understand that God made, made provision for you to have everlasting life. Push that button. That's all you have to do. Repent and trust the Savior. And God will manifest himself to you, transform you on the inside, give you a new heart with new desires so that you will love that which is right. And that's a miracle when it happens to you. But perhaps you have an ulterior motive. Perhaps that you, it's not that you can't find God, but it's that you won't find God. You don't want to, as the Bible says. Once in a while, I get people that really, that, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, well, why not? Really, why not? You guys believe 20 billion years ago there was a big bang where nothing exploded and produced everything. 4.6 billion years ago, the earth cooled down made a hard rocky crust, it rained on the rocks for millions of years, turned them into soup, and the soup came alive three billion years ago. Found somebody to marry, and something to eat, of course, and slowly evolved into everything we see today. There are some lies in our science books. Taught it for 15 years. Even though I'm not teaching it anymore, I still like to study. It's so many neat things to learn. And we're going to cover some of that tonight. I'm not against science, I'm not against schools, I'm not against teachers. Because most of them don't know what they believe, you have to tell them. They teach the kids it all started with the Big Bang 20 billion years ago. What exploded? <laughs> this is what the textbooks teach. Before the Big Bang, there was nothing, literally nothing, an infinitesimal nugget of space. And then something happened, triggering the most colossal explosion in history. What? <laughs> yes, boys and girls, you see, nothing exploded, and uh, here we are. So I asked this professor if I could ask him some questions about the Big Bang. I said, where did all this matter come from? He said, well, we don't know that for sure. I said, well, sir, would you please tell me where the laws came from? The universe is run by laws, gravity, centrifugal force, inertia. Who gave the laws? He said, we don't know that either. I said, sir, could you tell me where the energy came from? You know, it takes energy to make a Big Bang. Who bought the gas to run this machine anyway? Hmm? He said, we don't know that either. I said, uh, sir, could I ask you another question? He said, sure. What else would you like to know? What do you mean else? You haven't told me nothing yet. I said, does Berkeley have a merry-go-round? You see, if a spinning object breaks apart in a frictionless environment, the fragments will all spin the same direction. The professor said, yes, I understand about the conservation of angular momentum. I said, well, good. I'd like to ask you a question then, sir. If the whole universe began as a swirling dot, like you said, why do two planets spin backwards? He said, that's interesting. 
said, no, that's more than interesting. It's kind of hard on your Big Bang Theory. Not only that, six of the moons are spinning backwards. Why? He said, I don't know. Why do you think they're going backwards? Uh, I was hoping he was going to ask that. I said, okay, now, sir, hold it. If I told you that I believe God created the heaven and the earth like the Bible teaches, you're going to say, and where did God come from? And I don't know. But you said, well, we don't know that for sure. We don't know that either. We don't Don't tell me my theory is religious and yours is science. Oh, no, sir, they're both religious. Evolution is a religion. You have to believe. So ask the professor, where did the matter come from? He said, I don't know. So basically, I believe in the beginning God, and you believe in the beginning dirt. <laughs> One professor was getting kind of upset about this time. He said, uh, Mr. Hoven, there are hundreds of varieties of dogs in the world. He said, you mean to tell me that you believe all these dogs came from two dogs off of Noah's Ark? You expect me to believe that? I said, sir, would you look at what you're teaching your students? You're teaching your students that all the dogs in the world came from a rock. <laughs> Charles Darwin was disciplined. I mean, he did these extraordinary experiments, this series of experiments. Then they're going to tell the kids, well, we have evidence for this theory. Charlie Darwin stopped off at these islands right there called the Galapagos Islands. Charlie studied the birds very carefully and said, you know what, I think all these birds had a common ancestor. I bet you're right, Charlie. It was a bird. You see 14 kinds of birds and you conclude that birds and bananas are related. Here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. They tell the kids they have evidence of evolution from fossils. I don't think so. If you find a fossil in the dirt, all you know is it died. You don't know that it had any kids. And you sure don't know that it had different kids. You bring in a bone to the judge. Judge, I found this bone in the dirt. This is the ancestor of all the humans today. <laughs> they would laugh at you. You don't know that that's the ancestor of anybody. And why on earth would you think a bone in the dirt can do something animals today cannot do? They'll say, boys and girls, you have two bones in your wrist, radius and ulna. And boys and girls, look at the whale's flipper carefully. Did you know the whale has two bones in his flipper and they're called the radius and the ulna? Same as ours. Wow, who named them, teacher? The whale? <laughs> Think about it. I'm here to tell my people it's time to stop believing bull just because I tell you bull with a straight look on their face. Evolution say people came from monkeys. And the question is, why is there still monkeys? Is these the retarded monkeys? They didn't turn into people just yet. Even Stephen Gould admitted the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages is a persistent and nagging problem for evolution. See, what's happened, these guys have looked for missing links in the, in the fossil record. They can't find any. And so they say, well, maybe evolution happened so fast it wasn't preserved. Maybe a reptile laid an egg and a bird hatched out. Well, who did that bird marry? This process that brought us to be is billions of years old. It happens very fast, billions of years fast. Here is um, radioactivity. We're going to tell the kids in the late 1940s, they invented carbon dating. We're going to explain a little bit about radiometric dating and how it's supposed to work, and then show you that it does not work, OK? It sounds good, but there are some assumptions that mess everything up. If we had walked into a room and found a candle burning on the table, and I asked you the question, when was it lit? You said, I don't know, Mr. Holman, it's burning when I got here. Okay, well then, let's do some empirical science. Let's measure the height of the candle. Suppose the candle is seven inches tall. Who can tell me when it was lit? Okay, nobody. Let's do some more empirical science. Let's measure the rate of burn. Suppose we determine it's burning an inch an hour. When was it lit? 
You're going to have a hard time telling me unless you're willing to make some assumptions. You find a fossil in the dirt, you can measure how much C14 is in it. Very accurately, by the way. And you can measure how fast it's decaying. That's just like measuring the height of your candle and how fast it's burning. Now, when did that animal die? You don't have a clue. Here's what you ought to consider about carbon dating. Samples of known age, it doesn't work. If it's a sample of unknown age, it is assumed to work. It's just a really hard thing. It's, it's really a hard thing. Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. Freshly killed seal, carbon dated 1,300 years old. Shells from living snails, carbon dated 27,000 years old. Living penguins, carbon dated 8,000 years old. One part of Dima was 40,000 years old, another part was 26,000, and the wood next to it is 9,000. Then they tell the kids about the geologic column. They say each of the layers is a different age, you know, Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic, Archaeozoic, all them Zoic boys. Now, if you get a petrified tree standing up, running through different rock layers, I don't think it's smart to say those layers are vastly different ages. Those trees did not get slowly covered by the sediments over millions of years. They would rot and fall down. Uh, crazy. It just, They'll say, boys and girls, you have an appendix that you don't need anymore. That's a vestigial structure. That's proof of evolution. Well, excuse me, you do need your appendix. The appendix is part of your immune system. If your appendix is taken out, you can still live, okay, but it increases your susceptibility to quite a few diseases. You can live without both your legs and both your arms and both your eyes also. That doesn't prove you don't need them. There are no vestigial organs. And even if there were, that would be the opposite of evolution. That's losing, not gaining. I was taught when I went to school, man used to have a tail, but he lost it because he didn't need it. I thought, didn't need it? Have you ever thought how handy a tail would be? <laughs> have you ever come to the door with two sacks of groceries? Wouldn't that be nice, man, be able to grab that door and walk right around and get in? <laughs> Lost it because we didn't need it. Man, you could drive the car and tune the radio knob and hold the Coke at the same time. What we're finding is that natural selection seems to be an incredibly important factor in generating new species. Natural selection the key evolutionary mechanism Darwin identified. The bad designs get eaten by the good ones, and so all you have is good ones. Why is there still monkey? Natural selection doesn't cause any evolution. It makes sure the bad ones don't survive, but it's not going to change it to something else. That's what evolution is. If you worked in a factory that produced cars, and your job was to check for defects, and you caught every single mistake, and you rejected it, how long would it take that process to change the car to an airplane? You say, it'll never change it. That's my point. The students are taught we have evidence from development. Darwin considered this by far the strongest single class of evidence. This textbook says, the human embryo growing in the mother has gills like a fish. Those little folds of skin are not gills. Those little wrinkles under your chin when you're growing up later develop into bones in the ear and glands in the throat. They never have anything to do with breathing. I've seen folks that have five or six chins and they can't breathe through any of them but the top one. <laughs> Those are not gill slits. Ernst Haeckel, though, said the turning point in his thinking was when he read Darwin's book. He made huge charts of his posters of his drawings of these embryos and traveled all over Germany and just about by himself converted the Germans to believing in evolution. Haeckel took a drawing of a dog and a human embryo and he changed them to make them look exactly alike. On top are Haeckel's fake drawings. Underneath are actual photographs of what he claimed he was drawing a picture of. Now, either he's a lousy artist or he's a liar. 
Well, it turns out he's a liar. He was convicted of fraud by his own university, proven to be a fraud. But guess what? Haeckel's fake drawings are still used in textbooks in your state right now. It's only been proven wrong 125 years ago. I know it takes a while to get textbooks up to date, but that ought to be plenty of time. Adolf Hitler said, if you let me control the textbooks, I'll control the state. Watch this sentence here carefully. Some kid's doing this for homework tonight. Boys and girls, do you think humans are still evolving? Now, what kind of question is that? Doesn't that question assume that evolution has happened? What if a kid doesn't believe in evolution? How is he supposed to do his homework tonight? That question does not teach him how to think critically. That teaches him what to think, not how to think. And when the kid gets done with this course, he's going to think he knows how to think. But he doesn't. He knows how to be told what to think. Brainwashing at taxpayer expense. They want to use my tax dollars to teach that to your kids in our schools. If you want to deny evolution, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. And that's where the problem comes in. Okay? If you want to believe in the Big Bang, just enjoy yourself, but keep your religion at home. The Russian atheist astronomer came to America and spoke at one of the universities, and he said, started off his speech. He said, folks, either there is a God or there isn't. Both possibilities are frightening. If there is no God, we're in trouble. We're hurtling through space around the sun right now at 66,000 miles an hour, and nobody's in charge. <laughs> That's a scary thought. But if God made the world, he owns it. That means he makes the rules. You see, if there is a God, we better find out who he is and find out what he wants and do what he says. Malcolm Muggeridge said, I am convinced the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it's been taught, applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books of the future. It's a joke. And it would be a joke if it weren't for the tragic results. How many kids are taught this thing every day and believe it and it destroys their faith? Find you something to believe in. Whole thing, who do you even pray to? Nobody. Hey, if you died today, where would you go? You ought to think about it because you will be dead for a long time. Doesn't matter how long you live, you're going to be dead longer than that. You know George Washington died 200 years ago, and he's still dead. How much longer does he have to go? You're going to be dead for a long time. All you get in this life is a little bitty dash between two dates. Just a little, and it's gone. What are you going to do with your dash? Where would you go if you died? Now, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, you ought to give your heart to the Lord and get saved. Say, Lord, you may have it, the whole thing. If you are saved, you ought to find something to do for the Lord. And you ought to quit worrying about getting a fancier car and a fancier house and start worrying about who's going to heaven or hell. Maybe God gave you that good job so you can give some money to missionaries. Not so you can build a bigger, fancier house. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. And if you don't want it, well, that's your business. But the devil is laughing at you for believing in that. But God loves you, and He wants you to come to heaven. And if you'd like to find out how to go to heaven, come see me. I'll be glad to show you. Another text question is, says, If all religions claim to be truth, then how can Christianity make that claim and think that it is correct? appreciate that question, <clears throat> and it's a question that has the assumption that is very correct. Oftentimes, the Christian takes the hit 
that he or she was a follower of Jesus Christ is the only one who lays claim to exclusivity. That is not true. <clears throat> Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu and he renounced two of the fundamental doctrines of Hinduism, the authority of the Vedas and uh, the caste system. He could not accept those two, went on his own journey in search of enlightenment and came, of course, with the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the ultimate extinguishing of desire in his nirvanic pursuit. So he turned his belief away from the religion of his birth in order to find a different answer. <clears throat> Islam is also exclusivistic in its claim, uh, in all of its precepts and its five pillars and so on. What about these contradistinctions? The first thing we need to know is there are distinctions, there are fundamental differences. At best, there are superficial similarities. <clears throat> I often hear the question posed wrongly. They'll say, are all aren't all religions fundamentally the same and superficially different? No. They are fundamentally different and at best they are superficially similar. What are the fundamental claims, for example? In Buddhism, the goal is to ex extinguish hunger, extinguish desire. I remember talking to the first woman monk who was from Thailand to be ordained into the Buddhist priesthood. But Thai Buddhists do not ordain women, so she went to Sri Lanka to be ordained, and she has a PhD in philosophy from McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, Ontario, and uh, Waterloo, I guess, Ontario, McMaster University there, got her PhD in philosophy, and she gave me the first interview. We chatted for well over an hour, one-on-one, -on -one, and I sort of angled into some questions because I didn't want to be too discourteous. And one of the things I said to her is, I hear you're married. And she said, yes. I said, you have children? She said, yes. I said, but you're living in a temple by yourself? She said, yes. I said, do you not see your children? She started crying. She said, I have a car. I said, you have a car? She said, yeah. I said, okay. So she drove herself because she can't allow uh, a man to drive her, she said, so she has to drive herself. And she says, every evening at the end of the day, I try and meet up with one of my children. She said, this is the hardest part of my life. I said, so you are on the journey to extinguishing the desire to be with your children. Is that right? Is that a fair assessment? She kept quiet. And then I said this. I said, the Dalai Lama has as his primary pursuit now the freedom of Tibet. She said, that's right. I said, why does he desire that? She looked at me and she said, we try not to get into these philosophical questions. Let's just say that he chooses to. You take a look at other world religions <clears throat> and see where these four questions are dealt with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. These four questions have to be answered in two ways. Follow me, please. Every particular answer has to correspond to truth, either through empirical form of measurement or through the logical reasoning process. And when those four answers are put together, they must cohere and not be incoherent. So the two tests, correspondence and coherence, I guarantee you only in the Judeo-Christian worldview will you find these four questions answered with corresponding truthfulness and with the coherence of a worldview. Let me take just one example. 
And I don't say this to slight, but this is a fact and we have to deal with it. I've been invited in many, many Islamic countries and I have open forums there and going to go to one of the toughest Islamic countries within the next few weeks. They've hosted me in many parts there and we've had dialogues. I want to give to you two things. In the Quran, it is the only historically claimed document that denies that Jesus Christ was actually crucified or died on the cross. Denies that. The Greek historians say he died on the cross. Roman historians say that. Pagan historians say that. Jewish historians say that. And Christian historians say that. The Islamic, uh, the, the Quran is the only one that says it appeared to him that he died, but he didn't actually die on the cross. So historically, it is making an affirmation that is really historically untrue. I got into a discussion with Sheikh Hussein of the leading Shiite cleric in Damascus, Syria, a real gentleman. For over three hours we talked with an interpreter between us and an audience listening in. I was allowed to ask him one question about his faith and he was allowed to ask me one question about mine. There was nothing, no rancor, no adversarial stance, just a perspective and counter perspective and back and forth. It's the best way to do it really. At the end of it, Sheikh Hussein looked at me, he was very respectful through the whole time, always referred to me as Professor, Professor Zacharias, Professor Zacharias. And then at the end he looked at me, leaned over and he said, you know, Professor, I think the time has come for us in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus Christ died and to start asking why. I said to him, may I quote you on that, sir? He said, yes, you may. I'm, I'm hopefully going to go there before long, and I hope we can meet up again. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The Judeo-Christian worldview is not the only one that claims exclusivity, but it's the only one that takes those four questions with corresponding answers that are truthful and coherent answers that stand the test of time and the ultimate answer of the resurrection from the dead that gives you hope and meaning. A common question I sometimes hear is this one. Don't all religions lead to God? After all, doesn't that sound so inclusive, so tolerant, so pluralistic, so harmonious to say that? Well, in one sense, it's a very easy question to answer, though. Do all religions lead to God? No. Why can I say that so emphatically? Well, when you look at the claims of the major religions, all of them don't even claim to lead to God. What do I mean? We'll take some of the major world religions for a moment. Let's begin with an unusual one, atheism, which in many ways functions like a religion. What does atheism claim to lead you to? Well, it claims to lead you to death, destruction and oblivion. That's what's waiting for you after death in atheism. What about Buddhism? And Hinduism, those Eastern religions, well, of course, in Buddhism, it's doubtful whether there even is a God. But in Buddhism and Hinduism, what's on offer waiting for you in the afterlife? What's waiting for you eventually is that your personality will be destroyed and you'll be absorbed into the kind of cosmic consciousness. There'll be no you after death. Well, what about Islam? Islam, many people think, surely that must teach that there's, a, there's an encounter with God awaiting for you. Well, no. 
Yes, there's a promise of paradise and heaven for the faithful Muslim. But if you read the Quran, the scripture of Islam, and you see how it describes that paradise, it's described in very earthly terms. There are rivers of wine and fountains of crystal clear water and beautiful fruit trees and beautiful virgins there waiting for the faithful Muslim in paradise. But God... He is not there. He is absent. Because in Islam, Allah, the God of the Quran, is a God who is distant and remote, not relational, not a God who can be known, not a God who can be met in heaven. So, no religion claims to lead you to God. Well, that's not strictly true. There is one religion among the world's faith that does, and that's the religion of Christianity. You see, Christianity promises you that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, there can be an encounter with God awaiting for you in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will walk and talk with God again, that we will, as the New Testament puts it, no longer see as in a glass darkly, but we will see face to face. It is precisely relationship with God, encounter with God, that is an offer in Christianity. Do all religions lead to God? No, they don't. Only one religion claims to lead us to God, and that is Christianity. I am confused. Being philosophically consistent and being a very honest person, I'm sure you can tell me where God came from. And in addition, in addition, once you've told me where God comes from, uh, please try to clarify how you can figure that a spiritual force can have an impact on a material universe to create it. I think that some years ago we already talked about that kind of thing in uh, philosophical circles at any rate by posing the question, if angels are made of uh, spiritual matter and a pen is made of material matter and spiritual matter displaces no space, how many angels can dance on the tip of a pen? <laughs> I have a sense of sort of uh, uh, reversal experience here, but, but please do, go ahead. You've got five minutes. Now, I just wonder which question. That's all right, you may take the rest of the minute. We're supposed to do one question at a time. Which one would you like? That was part of the format for the debate, so which, which question? I want you to fill in the story of the rest of the uh, beginning of the universe. God, spiritual matter, impact on material matter. Okay, so two questions. All right. Go ahead. All right, your question, where did God come from, assumes that you're thinking of the wrong, uh, obviously it displays that you're thinking of the wrong God, <laughs> because the God of the Bible d is not affected by time, space, or matter. If he's, if he's affected by time, space, or matter, he's not God. Time, space, and matter is what we call a continuum. All of them have to come into existence at the same instant, because if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? If there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? You cannot have time, space, or matter independently. They have to come into existence simultaneously. The Bible answers that in ten words. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heaven, there's space, and the earth. There's matter. So you have time, space, matter created, a trinity of trinities there. Just, you know, time is past, present, future. Space has length, width, height. Matter has solid, liquid, gas. You have a trinity of trinities created instantaneously. And the God who created them has to be outside of them. If he's limited by time, he's not God. The guy who created this computer is not in the computer. He's not running around in there changing the numbers on the screen, okay? The God who created this universe is outside of the universe. He's above it, beyond it, in it, through it. He's, he's unaffected by it. So for, and the, the concept that a, a spiritual uh, force cannot 
have any effect on a material body, well then I guess you'd have to explain to me things like emotions and love and hatred and envy and jealousy and, and rationality. I mean, if your brain is just a random collection of chemicals that formed by chance over billions of years, how on earth can you trust your own reasoning processes and the thoughts that you, you think? Okay? So, um, I, your, your question, where did God come from, is assuming a limited God. And that's your problem. The God that I worship is not limited by time, space, or matter. If I could fit the infinite God in my three-pound brain, he would not be worth worshiping, that's for certain. So that's the God that I worship. Thank you. How can we know for sure that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead? I mean, is this just some myth or some clever fable that a group of people made up that has trickled down throughout history that we have just been told to believe? Or is there some evidence or some proof that this is really indeed the truth? And so today I want to give you five undeniable reasons why you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reason number one is because of the precautions of the Romans. Now you must understand that the Romans started hearing rumors that the disciples were going to come and steal the body of Jesus. Jesus Christ away and say that he rose from the dead. And so in order to prevent this from happening, they did three things. First of all, they put what's called a guard around the tomb. And a guard was nothing more than a group of 10 to 30 soldiers who were highly trained to protect this tomb and guard it with their lives. The second thing they did was they put a stone around the opening of the tomb. And this stone weighed somewhere close to three or 4,000 pounds. And so this hindered anybody who wanted to come in or get out. And then the third thing they did is actually put a Roman seal around this stone such that if anyone tampered with or broke this seal, they were punished by death. So to suggest, as some would, that the disciples broke in and stole the body of Jesus Christ and claimed that he rose from the dead would be highly unlikely because here is a group of fishermen and tax collectors, and the Bible says shortly before Jesus was crucified that all of them were terrified and afraid and forsook Jesus and ran for their lives, and to think that this fearful group somehow got enough courage to break through a group of highly trained soldiers and steal the body of Jesus Christ is highly unlikely. The second reason is because of the faith of the disciples. We have to consider once again that right before Jesus was crucified, this group of disciples were cowards. But as soon as he rose from the dead, they all of a sudden turned into fearless preachers who were ready and willing to be beaten burned, beheaded, sawed into two, stoned, crucified, and even being willing to risk their very lives. So the question we have to ask is why would this group of people be willing to risk their very lives for something they knew deep in their hearts was nothing more than a lie? The third reason is because of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Perhaps one of the most convincing proofs is the fact that the Bible says that after his suffering, he gave many convincing proof that he was alive and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that at one time Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, so much so that when he was writing this letter, he essentially told his readers, hey, if you don't believe me, you don't have to take my word for it. Go and speak to the people who saw them for themselves because most of them are still alive today. So to say that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead would suggest that all of these hundreds of people were either crazy or hallucinating, which is highly unlikely. Reason number four is that secular history confirms it. Now, it would be one thing if the Bible was the only book that recorded the miracle of the resurrection, but other secular history books record the same thing. First of all, it's recorded by a man named Josephus, who was a Jewish non-Christian historian. 
Second of all, it was recorded by a man named Thomas Arnold who wrote the history of Rome. What makes these testimonies even stronger is that they were written by non-Christians who were simply seeking to be credible and trustworthy historians, which means they had to report the truth whether they liked it or not. More recently, people like Frank Morrison, Lee Strobel, and Josh McDowell, all professed atheists, sought out to disprove the reality of the resurrection, thus proving that Christianity was nothing more than a false religion based on a myth. But as they dug into it and researched it more and more, they found that it was the undeniable truth, and eventually all of them converted over to Christianity. And reason number five was that the missing body of Jesus Christ was never found. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then that means that his body would have still been in the grave, which means that all the Romans needed to do was simply reproduce the body of Jesus Christ, and then they would have settled the lie that Jesus rose from the dead, thus destroying Christianity forever. But the very fact that they could not reproduce the body is proof in and of itself that this miraculous event did occur in history.